0: Hello and welcome to Bootstrap, the podcast for software bootstrappers. If you are running a software company or looking to start one, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Steve McLeod. Do you send your customers a regular email newsletter? If not, you probably should. An email newsletter is a great way to stay in touch with customers, improving loyalty and decreasing churn. But which email newsletter service is best for you? When I was trying to choose which service to use for Feature Upvotes monthly newsletter, I turned to Email Tool Tester. Email Tool Tester's reviews helped me find the best option for my needs. Best of all is their deliverability study. Email Tooltester regularly tests all the major email services to find out which ones actually get your emails into your customer's inbox. You can check it out at emailtooltester.com slash deliver. That's emailtooltester.com slash deliver. Today I'm joined by Julian Wilde. Julian is the founder of Wormley. Welcome, Julian. Thanks, Steve. It's uh, good to be here um, at home. (laughs) Julian just revealed that we're actually in his apartment during this interview. Julian is a good friend of mine, so this interview is somewhat different in that I actually know the answers to some of the questions I'm asking him. But there's a very specific reason why I invited Julian on the podcast, and that can be summed up in one word, Mongolia. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Julian, tell us about yourself and your
1: business. I still identify myself as a programmer. This is something I've loved to do since, honestly, I was uh, four or five years old when I first tapped away on a keyboard in BASIC. And uh, working in software for a few years, I, I kind of looked around and saw that it shouldn't be too difficult to start my own software business. So I quit my job and started writing code had a few different projects that ranged between unsuccessful to slightly successful. And then went about building this monitoring service called Wormley. This was some years ago, this was in 2005. And ultimately that went on to become a bit more moderately successful and rapidly became my full-time, or should we say kind of full-time occupation. It provides your full-time income, right? Yeah. I haven't had any other job, since that last one in 2005. You make it sound so easy. I
0: just, (laughs) you know, write some code. But then when you add that with it being 2005, I think that's a telling detail how much harder things must have been in 2005 than it is today to get
1: started with uh, the business online. Mm, I'm I'm not even sure I would agree with that. I mean, 2005, we were still well into the, you know, the internet era. 2005, companies were already prepared to to consider a monthly subscription for a software service rather than buying a license and installing it on premise. So I think, I think if it was 1999, I think there would have been a significantly bigger barrier. You know, you would have had to get some sun microsystems boxes in a, in a co-location area and cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to even start. But certainly in 2005, you could already get, you know, dedicated servers at a price that was affordable to an individual who was trying to bootstrap a a software business. I think, I think it was a good time really to do it. I think now, of course, anyone can contract compute power and every other element you need to start a business within minutes uh, for a few dollars a month. But ultimately that just means the pool of competition is far larger than it was back then. So definitely this is a web oh
0: phase like Salesforce and, uh, DHH product, Ruby on Rails guys. What's their
1: product called? Basecamp. But that Basecamp, also yeah. means there
0: was no Stripe, no AWS. Mm.
1: Mm. The pre-stripe days, they were horrible. Yeah, <laughs> actually getting, the hardest part was getting payments processed. That was, I remember now that was, that was a real headache that doesn't exist anymore. And Yeah, I had a lot of stress over the years. Even, even just trying to transact in foreign currency and then get a bank account that I could get that deposited into without Losing three or four percent on fees for no apparent reason. This was a real pain point back then.
0: So, wormless monitoring software, and I see monitoring software as one of those categories in which lots of developers think, "Hey, I can do that. I'm going to do it and make a big business." It's up there with CMSS and bug tracking yep. and monitoring. They're the other ones that we all think, "Or oh, maybe accounting software," but you did it. You actually did monitoring software. It's a very crowded niche. Even back in two thousand five, you was, weren't the yeah. only operator, it right? Was.
1: So why? Why did you choose monitoring yeah, software? I'm monitoring. I mean back then, so I guess I was twenty four years old. And perhaps I hadn't really figured out that we all as programmers we prefer to scratch our own itch. We we are kind of blind to the needs of the rest of the world other than what we as programmers think are important problems to solve and clearly monitoring and pretty graphs and metrics are things that we just like and it can inherently relate to. So it was very easy for me to, to see a problem with the existing offering and decide, well, I can do it better than that. So I'm going to do it. Where did it come from? Yeah, I was working uh, with the guys at SitePoint.com, writing code for them and we were running servers and we were getting quite a lot of traffic think at that point, certainly by those, by the standards of the day. And we were often having problems with our servers falling over and things crashing. And we were using one of the numerous open source monitoring packages. I guess it was Hobbit, Big Brother, I think it was called at the time. Maybe it's called something else now. It doesn't exist. Really atrocious piece of software. Horrible to use. Terrible user experience. Difficult to install. Unfathomable. And that's I just, a damning uh, review. Yeah, really awful, awful stuff. And I just remember thinking, certainly the company that I was working with, we, we were prepared to pay money to solve this problem. In fact, I seem to recall we had this problem of servers going down in the middle of the night, and our tech te- our operations team of like two guys, we didn't even know about it, you know. So we just slept through it. And the owner of the business was like, why can't we just get an SMS when this happens and like wake these guys up? And then he went and I pulled out his credit card and started paying $5 a month for some service that did exactly that. And I saw this and thought, well, wow. Ka-ching. Ka-ching. if, <laughs> if the business owner is just going to pull out some money and, and spend a, even if it was $50 or a hundred dollars a month, he would have paid it because in his view, quite rightly, this was a critical problem. And the software that he was paying for was so basic that I just saw an opportunity to just build a better mousetrap and so, I Not realizing at the
0: time that it was about marketing as much as it was about, uh, mm. uh, building the software. Well, at that point I,
1: no, I did have an advantage in the sense that I was working for a company that had started to sell software. And so I saw the inner workings of a small, uh, naive tech company that was trying to sell, sell software. And, looked at the mechanics of it and thought, I think I can do this this too. And at that point, I hadn't decided to try to launch a company building monitoring software, but I did decide that I'm going to build some kind of software company. But that monitoring pain point stuck in my mind. So I went ahead and sort of quit that job and started tinkering with various different things. And I didn't get straight onto the monitoring project, but it was in the back of my mind. And then... I guess I was planning to do it at some point and after, uh, maybe after six months, I started coding it. Yeah, I started looking at what could I build that would be, you know, would solve this problem that I had, would provide just a nice bit of software that those guys could use. They could be my first customer. And were they your first customer? I think they probably were, yes. And you know what? To this day, they are still a customer. So did you immediately put their logo on your on your homepage oh, as you trusted by? Of course. In fact, uh, yeah, I was good friends with the the founder. And so I said, hey, I want to put a quote from you on the homepage. And he said, sure, you write it yourself. I haven't got time to come up with quotes." quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably still on there. I'm not even sure. It's probably somewhere on the site. But yeah, it was... Um, and he wrote,
0: in, or you wrote for him. Wormley has changed my life, my life in ways you couldn't possibly
1: imagine. Well, it was something uh, almost that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Twee. It was almost. <laughs> it was almost that twee. Uh, um, but yeah. So
0: do you remember how long it took you to get from the point of uh, the first customer to this being something you could live off? Was it like six months, a year, five years? Mm, it, was, it was certainly more
1: than a year. So you kept working for. Full time job and did this in the background. No, I am um, and I must admit, I have to think carefully because this is fifteen years ago now. But um, so what happened was, first of all, I, I quit my job with some money saved up because this is the privilege of being a you know a young software engineer in the in the rich world. You can earn plenty of money writing code, so you can save up some money and just quit your job and work out. You have the luxury of having some time to try to build a business or work out what you want to do. Um, So I just quit with no real plan because I had realized that even working, even working four days a week or perhaps even three, I didn't have enough mental energy to be writing code as a side project. I think I did initially try that. I tried to keep working in that job and start coding other projects on the side. So this is when you're still in your mid twenties full of youthful energy. And then you realize that
0: it's not, there is a real problem with yeah. having enough energy.
1: And made no mistake, I did, and even still do, love to write code. And yet I found that yeah. I-, I could see that this wasn't going to be serious if I kept my job. I just wouldn't be able to really come up with good, good work doing it on the side. And I certainly didn't dislike this job that I was working in, but I decided that if I wanted to be serious about it, I would have to you know, quit my job and go all in. So I did. And... <clears throat> And by the way, it was a bit of a shame because it was a great company to work with. We used to have these Christmas parties on tropical islands. We used to do all kinds of good what? stuff. Yeah, 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 these were this was a bit of the dot com day kind of oh. uh, kind of sensation. So I, it was a bit of, with a bit of sadness that I I resigned because I, I loved working with these guys. Do you miss that aspect of working in a company you now being by yourself that you don't have? I think for the first year means. or two I did because for the first year or two, obviously, I was making a lot less money, didn't have. You know, I was in my 20s, didn't have these uh, organized, fun social activities and these riotous Christmas parties. So I think I did miss it. But that certainly feels like a distant memory now. Well, the whole digital nomad community didn't exist then. True. And that's that something be- that you can hook into if you're in that situation and find people to hang out with. And you know what? That's certainly – that was just coming up on the horizon, the idea that you could, as a – as a software business owner, you could actually live and work anywhere in the world. Yeah, so that just had come on my horizon. I thought, you know what? Like I, if I can get out of this job and get some kind of business, then probably I can do more travel because at that point in my life, I just started to travel and discover that I found, you know, the rest of the world more interesting than I found home. Although home is a very nice place, Melbourne, Australia. Which is the city we're currently in as we're talking? Yeah, but to be honest, I never, I never looked at my home and thought, "Oh, this is the best place in the world." I just considered it the place where I am. Never gave it too much thought.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the name Wormley. This is a
1: really, really strange name. <laughs> do you remember why you or how you came up with? I Wormley? do remember this vividly. Remember the answer to this question, and it it actually relates to something about home. So here in Australia, we had, and perhaps still have a. Uh, yeah, it would still exist, a television current affairs show called 60 Minutes, which I think is a franchise that originated in the United States. And they used to host political debates when election season was upcoming. And in those debates, the audience in the studio had a live voting system that decided who was winning the debate, right? This was a, I guess this was cutting edge technology when I was a kid. And on the television broadcast, they would show you the live, like the real-time performance of the two debate participants on the screen in the form of a, a graph. And it was a graph, obviously, that went up and down according to what each of these people said, and they referred to it as the worm. So this particular device they used to uh, to gauge the real-time performance of the debate was called the worm. And it was kind of the graphic on the screen, I guess, was stylized like a worm, but really it was a, it was a line... A, a line plot graph that kind of behaved like a worm going up and down in the soil. And because for me, monitoring was all about graphs, right? As a, as a software engineer, like metrics, it's graphs. It's like, this was kind of the angle I was coming from. I wanted nice looking graphs that, that had some visual appeal. You wanted your own worm. I wanted the worm and I, <laughs> I wanted to see... I wanted to see this worm dance. And, and how did the league add on to the end to become Wormly? Well, you may remember in the Web 2.0 era, there was a fashion. Uh, and I think I came in early on that fashion, actually, just adding L-Y onto the end of everything to make it a tech product. And it, it came to a head when Google acquired uh, an app called Rightly, which ultimately became Google Docs. Now, I think I launched with the name Wormly when Rightly was already in the marketplace but was unknown. And then once their naming choice was validated by Google's acquisition, I noticed many other products started to uh, have L-Y on the end. And that L-Y is Libya. Yeah, that's the top-level domain name for Libya. It is. And many did, years did later, I managed, problems? I managed to acquire the, uh, the Libyan domain, Worm.ly, which actually I still use to uh, host a staging environment by the political instability in libya hasn't caused problems with uh well that's that's not our primary domain so it's slightly irrelevant but um yeah funnily enough that that did take some time to get that domain because it was it did appear to be cyber squatted by uh someone else in melbourne for a long time but i eventually got a hold of it oh that (laughs) neighbor who's (laughs) human
0: So monitoring software, here's where I'm going to be in danger of being a little bit insulting, but I don't mean to be, it doesn't sound like the most exciting field to be working on for 15 years (laughs) for uh, year after year. Do you get bored with it? And if so, how do you deal with that
1: boredom? Mm. I think, I think what you get bored with is working on the same thing full stop. I don't think it really matters what the product is. You're going to, you're going to need some variety, right? Even uh, whatever the software product might have been, I don't think that outcome would be any different. From my point of view, uh, dealing with the boredom of kind of being in the same business for such a long period of time is quite frankly, I can I can leave it be for periods of time for periods of time without any consequence. It is automated. It is largely self managed. There's not a great deal that I need to do on it day to day. Therefore, when I am engaged in sort of more intense sprints of working on it, that's because I've chosen to do so, not because there was a pressing need to do so in general. So how have I avoided boredom? I've done other things. I've built other software projects. I've traveled, had a interesting personal life. There's uh, many more things in the world than just writing code. And I guess when you operate a business for 15 years, which, you know, is more than significantly more than a third of my life. It gives you some perspective on that fact that you can have your work and your life and you can sort of make them both coexist and have this ongoing project that is your, your work. It's your great work. And what the nuts and bolts of it are, I think don't really matter in terms of your boredom. Your boredom comes about in the way you live your life in terms of are you doing the same thing every day or not? I think that's the more critical factor. And, you know, I just got back from uh, an eight day motorcycle trip in Tasmania where obviously I wasn't doing any work. And yesterday I really enjoyed sitting down at the laptop and getting into the nuts and bolts of some DevOps stuff for the business. And the fact that it's a monitoring company really doesn't make any difference. Even if it was a much, a much sexier uh, consumer app, I don't know, let's say it was Snapchat. I don't think it would make any difference because my the work I, I enjoy is fundamentally writing code. And So, so I... while you're in Tasmania for eight days, if you didn't work, who did? Like Surely you have
0: people write emails saying, uh, can we get a discount, uh, account's not working, you want <laughs> a trial, mm. or have you automated all that away to nothing?
1: Well, I do, yeah. I have a support guy who... Uh... He's been working with me now for many years. And so he's the front line for those sorts of inquiries and takes care of the vast majority of them to the point where I, I rarely need to get involved, although I always I do read all of the emails that come through just so that I can stay abreast of what's going on. But no, I, do, I don't need to respond myself to those emails. And in terms of the operation of the business, that is all automated. There is, there is no intervention required.
0: Julian, if you ever looking for something else to do to fill your life you could write a guide to how to run a successful boring SaaS that actually doesn't require a lot of work to run this is really interesting stuff that you've got it to the point where he's able to do that frontline stuff for you and and you can go off motorcycling for eight days hey i want to talk to about talk to you now about mongolia as a lead up to this i for a long time thought having a SaaS, a software as a service was something I didn't want to do because it was going to limit my lifestyle that I'd have to be on hand all the time for a possible server downtime. And then was it 2014 Mongolian? Trip? Uh, yes, it was. Then Julian said he was going off on this uh, this rally to drive from Western Europe to Mongolia. And I just couldn't understand how you could do that and run a mission critical SaaS. He pulled it off and it actually was one of that moment when my mind started saying, maybe I could do this and should do this. Tell us about
1: the Mongolian trip, what it was and why you did it. So this was a very good friend of mine who indeed was one of the founders of that business I was referring to earlier at SidePoint. Fellow keen traveler, an adventure kind of guy. He uh, suggested to me, why don't we do this trip that a bunch of people do every year where they buy a cheap car, In Western Europe and they drive it across to Mongolia in a long and circuitous route that will challenge the the limits of the the cheap, crappy nature of the car. It was kind of the goal of the trip was to take a small car and drive it (coughs) to places where it's a completely inappropriate vehicle, which has a certain uh, charismatic charm to it, so I thought this was a great idea. And obviously these were a bunch of countries we'd be visiting through central Asia that I never really even pictured on the map, let alone visited. So it was a great opportunity to go to a bunch of places that otherwise I probably wouldn't get to. So yeah, the idea came about from a friend who also uh, happens to these days, run a, a software business. And so we both kind of had the same challenge in terms of how do we do this, where we're going to be in remote locations with no internet with the potential of there being some kind of catastrophe for our respective online businesses. But I must admit I wasn't extraordinarily phased by the idea, being as it was, uh, about ten years into the life of the business. So at that point, I was pretty comfortable that everything I built was robust. Indeed, for the entire life of the business, there has there's never been a critical outage, not even once. So. I certainly so we had a
0: really in 15 years. No serious outage. No serious. Outage. Okay, there's, an advert, monitoring... there's an advert for Wormley if <laughs> ever you needed one for monitoring software. Hey, the listeners might not realize just what it means to be driving across these countries. We're talking like Iran. Did you have to go through Pakistan or you avoided that? No, not Pakistan. There's some yes, other certainly
1: Iran and Turkmenistan were the two places where there really largely was no Internet. So you're
0: running a mission critical B2B
1: SaaS while traveling in places where there's basically no internet. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously with that in mind, the preparation of the trip involved some contingency. And at that time, of course, I had a a full-time software engineer working on the business. So I handed over the uh, operational responsibility to him for the duration of the trip. Um, And again, this was a, a very competent guy who I trusted to be able to take care of any problems that may have arisen in those periods. Ultimately, there were there were none. There were no failures And I guess the other perhaps surprising part of the trip is that even in 2014 There were very very few places in the world certainly this part of the world uh, Eurasia Where you would find yourself without internet for very long? Most surprising of all was we spent about three days driving this uh, tiny car across the Gobi Desert from Western Mongolia to the capital and after a lot of messing around, we managed to buy a SIM card in Mongolia and found that we had decent 3G pretty much the whole way, which was somewhat astounding. Oh, that's better than Australia. Yeah. <laughs> where, where if you
0: are going the highways between the cities, you spend large periods of time outside of.
1: Yeah, indeed. And having just spent a week on the road in Tasmania, uh, most of the days riding was spent outside of, uh, phone coverage. So it is different. Um, Funny, funny story. I remember at one point in, uh, I mean, it's Siberia, it's it's Russia in the uh, Altai mountain area, bought a local SIM card and went to a supermarket and my phone was showing LTE. And I guess this was the first phone I had that even supported LTE. I'd never seen that come up on the phone before. So I quickly jumped on speed test and found myself getting uh, 50 megabit downloads in the middle of Siberia on their phone network. I guess, figuring that they'd just deployed 4G LTE there and there was no one else who possessed a phone that was capable of using it. So I had the entire (laughs) available bandwidth to myself, but yeah, it was quite eye-opening to realize that there's nowhere that's without internet these days. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a barrier. So on this trip to Mongolia, were you generally buying new SIM cards every time you cross the border? Not even, to be honest. It was not not very stressful for us. We weren't particularly concerned. Um, Obviously, one of the features of my software is you're going to get an SMS if your stuff is failing most SIM cards will roam and you can receive these SMS for free so that if I got wind of the fact that there was a problem and I needed to get some internet, I could probably solve that problem. So no, we didn't buy a whole lot of SIM cards. We bought a few, but not, it wasn't a big concern. Actually though, I did also do a big trip in 2009, I think it was. And again, the business was only, you know, three or four years old at that point where it was really established it was only really at that point that I was deriving a good income from the business. So of course I felt very, you know, attached to the idea that this business needed to continue. And I spent 12 months traveling around the world and back in 2009. Yeah. Internet was a bit, a bit harder to come by in some more remote places around Mm. the world. And I was, I do, I do have memories and indeed from a previous trip in 2007, when the business was quite young being in, uh, in Southern Patagonia, and having some uh, fairly urgent technical problems to attend to and didn't even have my laptop with me and having to find an internet cafe where I could uh, plug in my USB stick, which had a bootable Linux environment, which would give me access to the things I needed. But ultimately, none of these things proved to be uh, really significant.
0: Were they at the issues. time though? Were they really stressful for you? And this I remember happening? being stressed, yes. Stressed to the point of thinking, I need to go buy a computer and spend two days working
1: uh, yeah, I think the, these thoughts would have crossed my mind. Yeah, there was definitely a stressful period, but at the same time, I found it really quite laughable, but here I was in, in this wilderness in, in deep South America, and here I am madly trying to find some internet cafe. You know, they were still running, Like this is pre-LCD monitor days, right? These, these guys are running these CRTs and these clapped out old Windows computers uh, and I'm there trying to like log in and fix some stuff and answer some emails. But yeah, it was, ultimately it was a great trip and I, I didn't have any regrets about doing that. And by comparison, driving to Mongolia seemed a lot more straightforward. Really? Well, again, you're, you're in a car, so you've got your laptop. If right, you it. It's a bit right. easier. When you're backpacking and doing it a bit more, doing a bit more of a rough kind of trip, certainly there were no, there was no data over mobile telephones back then you weren't buying sim cards there was no like 3g or, 4G or anything like this so you really needed to find a, an internet cafe i mean or, or a place that had wi-fi so that was definitely it was a bit harder in those days now yeah you buy a sim card you have data you can deal with your stuff almost anywhere in the world so in the mongolian trip were you staying in posh hotels that might be the only place in town that had internet or that did happen a couple of times in iran and Turkmenistan? yes we did We didn't stay there, but we did use the uh, posh hotel internet in Turkmenistan. I think not for any reason other than to post on Facebook. I certainly don't think we were, my friend and I were dealing with any problems with our respective businesses, but you would find, yeah, I mean, in that time, everywhere had internet, really. I mean, not just posh hotels. Maybe 10 years earlier, that would have been the case, but I don't think it's really the case anymore. I was in Turkmenistan
0: in, I think, 2012 and... Found the internet there unusable at the time.
1: Yeah, uh, so perhaps that was the one big exception on the on the path. Yeah, certainly, we weren't there for a very long time in Minnesota, maybe twenty four hours. But my trick was just to put an autoresponder onto the support email, saying sorry, we're no support for a few days, and just hope that nothing nothing bad happened. The other thing I must admit is the nature of a monitoring product like this is the volume of support queries is uh, is really very low. I mean, we can certainly go multiple days without a single support inquiry. It's very much a self-service product. The customer is obviously the people using the products are technical people. Therefore, they're much less likely to reach out to support than simply solve their own problem. So whilst I've always had uh, customer support, Guy doing that work. The fact is, it's not a high volume activity, so. It's so, so what does your customer support
0: guy do, or how much does he work? If it's not very
1: many tickets coming in, I guess he's not full time. No, he's he's certainly not. Honestly, most days he would probably spend less than half an hour
0: on wow. uh,
1: on customer support. Yeah, oh. it's uh, it's a low, definitely a low volume. So I'm activity. assuming then you're not paying him at a full
0: time. No. Rate. no, no, no. You know. pay him by the hour or just for a month? Just a fixed, a fixed yeah. fee. For How did you month? find yeah. that person?
1: Uh, I found him many years ago before Upwork was called Upwork. I think it was called Odesk or maybe... Uh, maybe he yeah. Lance, I think, was the other one. Yeah, he yeah. One of Odesk emerged. Uh, he's, he's an American guy. So obviously, a, a native English speaker is usually what you want for delivering uh, customer support. And a good in time language. zone, US time zones, so and yeah, he's helpful. in the time zone that that matches up with most of our customers. So yeah, That was not. And he's a he's a technical guy, so he understands. Even from the beginning, he understood the product quite, you know, with with without any great trouble. And obviously now he knows it back to front, probably knows it better than me. So it's great to have him on board, taking care of those uh, those details.
0: So that's six years at least you've had him working with you. You know, it's probably 10. That's wonderful. That's yeah. fantastic. Probably 10. That sort of uh, stability Find the person you're happy to work with and keep working with them year after year. Yeah. I guess he's got plenty of other things going on the his time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the truth is we've never met. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But when you do go to the States, you can make call it a business trip because he's quite <laughs> working there for you. So um, Julian, what next? Would you possibly sell Wormly? Do you want to keep it growing, or just keep
1: things as they are, so that you have plenty of time for hobbies and travel? It's funny you should say that. I, I received an email last week from some venture capitalist, in, uh, allegedly in San Francisco. I haven't got around to responding yet, but no, I don't. I don't have any plans to sell it. I'm realistic about what a potential valuation would be, and the. Any reasonable valuation is less than I would be prepared to accept to uh, let the business go. So no, I really have no plans to sell the business. I I enjoy working on it. I enjoy having a reason to to write code and do these things that I still like to do. And it's a look. It's a great business, and I like to have it. And I'm comfortable with the idea of continuing to operate it in the same way that it's been running for for many years now.
0: I like that the uh almost like a level of satisfaction with where you are rather than that constant need. Some people have to be doing something more.
1: Yeah. And I'm realistic. Like it's never going to be a, you know, a big player or a competitor to, to all the, you know, household names you've heard of in the monitoring space. It's never going to be a public company. It's never going to grow tenfold.
0: Not unless you build up a team of marketers and salespeople
1: and then you don't have the life you have now. Exactly. And that's by no means guaranteed to be successful anyway, but frankly, that's not, yeah, that's not the life I'm looking for.
0: Okay, Julian, that's all we have time for today. So thanks again for being on the show.
1: It's a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for uh, coming down to rainy, cold Melbourne to do an interview.
0: (laughs) And uh, where can people find you if they'd like to know more about you and your company?
1: Well, of course, that would be at uh, wormly.com. That's W-O-R-M-L-Y.com. We will, of course, have that in the show notes. (laughs)
0: Uh, Listeners, if you'd like to discuss more about today's topics, please go to our forum at bootstrapped.fm and join the conversation. Thanks again, Julian. Have a nice day. Thank you. Uh, Bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Until next episode, goodbye. ¡Gracias! ¿Eh? ¿Eh?